1: So Fran, isn't it interesting, we have this conversation a lot on this podcast, where you look at the numbers and the UK seems to be good at innovation and it seems to be good at getting venture capital investment into the UK, but it is very bad at listings. So much so that over the last year at Bloomberg, some of our reporters have got scoop after scoop after scoop on companies deciding to go to New York. It's the big one, isn't it?
2: There there was at some point a concern that the financial centres would move to Europe Um, They haven't moved to Europe, but there are definitely IPOs that the UK should have won, that the City of London should have gotten, that have gone elsewhere.
1: So the man responsible for all of this is new into his job. It was Andrew Griffiths, who people might remember we interviewed on In the City a few weeks back. And then I think a week later, he was moved (laughs) and there is no correlation. Um, And now it's a new chap called Bim BIM (laughs) AFALAMI Welcome to In The City, Bloomberg's podcast connecting you to the conversations and the stories shaping the world of finance. I'm Allegra Stratton.
2: And I'm Francine Lacqua. And this week we have with us City Minister Bim Ofalami, the Economic Secretary to the Treasury.
1: Been an interesting week, hasn't it, Bim, with, uh, with Simon Clark coming out calling for the PM to go? Well, look,
3: there are these moments where parties or indeed any organisation can decide whether it's going to do something dumb or whether it's going to do what it should do, which is row in behind and work together to improve the position. As a party, in a strange way, this week's actually been quite positive because you had Simon Clark, who has said something and called for the PM to go, which literally even people who are really against, who really don't like the Prime Minister, if you're honest, they have come out and said, this is a terrible idea, Simon. This is a really, really bad idea. And that just shows how unpopular that decision is. And I do not think the party uh, has any truck with it. And therefore, the positive aspect is that now the party is in a place mentally, which is we're working forward to a general election. Dis- disagreements, by all means, have them. We discuss things. The prime minister is very accessible, other cabinet ministers and other departments are very accessible. But we've got to row in behind and unite because if we do not unite, we will not have a good election result.
2: But but I I feel like actually the the party is pulling itself apart. Right? I don't think this is true, right? You, I mean, who you, needs you... an opposition if you work in, in the Tory Party right now? Like as an outsider, you think you, it, there's so many different views? I mean, even the, the the fact that there was a leadership, you know, call out so close to a possible general election seems you know pretty self-inflicting. I don't
3: doubt that it, it doesn't look very good. The point I'm trying to make is that actually even on the sort of immigration stuff that came up, um, you know, last couple of weeks, the number of people that actually are really going against the government is very, very small in number. And so my plea to the media, though this is probably, yeah, I don't know how useful this will be. Is, don't
2: say it's the media. It's done. No, this no, is no. not our fault. No, no, hold on.
3: <laughs> I said my plea is to not necessarily give a disproportionate amount of airtime to very
1: small numbers of people, far outside the mainstream of the party and the government. Can I just, just sort of moving on from party politics into policy, which I think I think is linked in that um, people talk about the next election and they have the sort of top tier issues of of um, obviously cost of living, immigration, NHS, and your portfolio obviously isn't in that, but it is it is in its own way going to be material to the next election, because it's about this growth agenda and about this sense that you guys know how to grow the pie, which Fran and I talk about all the time on this podcast. How do you see the role of your portfolio playing into the next election?
3: That's a really, really important question, because I think there are, there are really two aspects. The first is that we have got to raise our long-term trend growth rate in this country. We're not unique in having this problem. I think the whole of Europe has this problem. But one way in which we need to be able to do that is to allow and encourage our financial services sector to innovate and grow more, but do that in a way that benefits the wider economy. And that's where it has a political relevance in a day-to-day way. Because if we need to get, for example, we've got, you know, nuclear plant we're building. Private capital is so important to deliver energy infrastructure, which is hugely politically important. Or if we're trying to renovate left-behind communities in parts, for example, coastal communities or parts of the north of England. Private money investing in those places is absolutely critical for that agenda. That's why this brief on financial services is you know to some degree and I'm biased but you know it's the best job outside the cabinet because it really allows you to not just deal with incredibly clever able people in world's leading global financial center but you actually are integrally connected with what we're trying to do which is grow the economy and with this chancellor and prime minister you've got people who really think in the long term way which in the last year of Parliament is not always a given. And these guys, having spoken with them and worked with them over the last couple of months in this job, are always thinking, over the long term, is this going to make a difference? But, but they're probably not in charge in 12 months. Not necessarily. I'm old enough to remember when I first came into the House in 2017, all these headlines of Jeremy Corbyn was going to get, you know, was going to lose 100 seats, the Conservative Party was going to get a majority of 150 or 200. I can literally remember. And that was right up until the election campaign started. Four weeks later, he'd gained 30-odd seats and we had lost our majority. Now, I'm not predicting anything. I'm just making the point that elections, not just in this country, across Europe, across the West, are volatile things. A lot has happened in the last four or five years. And the only way you can proceed in this environment is do the right things in the long term, but also backed up with short-term measures as well.
1: So short-term, long-term, when do you think there is a significant suite of measures that have been announced by the Chancellor and you're pushing forward? Uh, We were just listening to you um, talking to a group of city analysts and bankers downstairs at Bloomberg HQ when do you think some of them check out? What's the sort? Of, I think you made a bet with the audience dance test, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, I, I did. I, I could see my I could see my my officials slightly look at me and say, "What on earth is the minister
3: going to say?" I didn't put
1: any numbers on it, but yeah, um, you did say that you thought that the there's me look at my notes. Um, what particular that the FCA's new regulations on single listings would narrow the gap, but you very cleverly didn't say by when. When do you? Think- well, no, no, I was no,
3: no. So the overall framing of all of that was by midway through this year. So the by mansion next house, mansion house. Yeah, right. so the mansion house speech, and we, I, I can't, it's going to be roughly halfway through the year, and by that point, you know, we're driving towards that as a time when we need to have delivered a lot of things that we've promised to do, and that we are doing right now, and yeah, I can tell you when I was first appointed to this job, the chancellor, my first conversation with him, he was being very nice and friendly, and then he just sort of said, but, you know, number one job is to deliver all the things we've said, because if we can't do that, you just can't buy the confidence of the industry more broadly. And so I am every single week with my team, with the officials, okay, where are we? I've got a long list in this folder that you can see here, got a long list of all the things we're doing. When is the FCA doing that? How can we move this forward faster? How can we get these things moving faster? And we've got two critical moments, both the budget and mansion house to, to look at how we can uh, improve this.
2: Oh, Minister, what's your biggest frustration? So is it the IPOs that London should have I don't think we have long enough won, to talk
3: about that. But
2: should have won? <laughs> your top two frustrations. Top
3: two frustrations in this space. I think that, I think one can underestimate um, in certain parts of the sector. I'll take pension funds and pension fund trustees as one. The extent to which the private sector can be just as risk-averse, just as wedded to the status quo as anything you find in the public sector. I think that some Conservatives do sort of have that prejudice, which is, oh, private sector is all innovation and growth and dynamism. Public that, sector yeah. is the opposite. That is not necessarily true. Um, I'd actually say the biggest distinction is big and small, right, often. Um, so I say that that is a frustration, is often saying, look, we are trying to improve the private market for the private sector, and 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 you don't necessarily find always the willingness. I say, that no, that's one frustration. And the other is to be able to connect in practical terms, capital markets and the real economy and real people. And I see one of my key jobs is doing that. I started that today, but over the next few weeks and months, I'm going to be increasingly talking about how private markets and all the things, reforms, I'll take Solvency 2 reforms that we've done, which are a technical term for basically capital requirements that were under an EU regulation that insurers had to keep. And what we're doing is we've changed those, that EU regulation to make it much more appropriate for British insurers, which frees up more capital for them to invest and invest in the British economy. And we think over 10 years that could be up to £100 billion, not just us, the industry themselves have signed up to that. Working out how that £100 billion gets spent, Where? How do we actually get that money spent? On what? How quickly? That whole thing is politically relevant because people will notice if your town centre now gets a huge amount of investment from a big insurance company. But also it's important for the sector to show that when we do these reforms, they actually get somewhere. They they lead to something.
1: And what is the answer to when? Is it is it pre-election or is that unrealistic? When you start to see that money actually sloshing out the gates?
3: I think, I mean, I am speaking to them very frequently, this year, we need to start seeing this money deployed. Um, this, this, This needs to happen this calendar year.
4: Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at stiefel.com. That's S T I F E L.com. Stiefel
0: Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis. And financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more. So you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more.
1: You had a great stat about retail investment. Uh, British people held 22% of equities 15 years ago. Now it's 11% and you want to reverse that. Just talk to us. This is like high street brands. They used to be normal to yeah. invest in them.
3: So the difficulty is that I just think that there was a wave of privatisations in the 1980s, um, and you know whether it was British Gas or BT and all of these sort of companies, and there was a whole generation of people who understood what share ownership was, and we just lost that. Uh, some, for some cultural reasons, for some regulatory reasons, I think that you went through a period of time after the financial crisis where it just became harder to engage in these markets unless you were a professional, uh, and for both cultural and regulatory reasons, we made it difficult. We now need to rediscover that um, because that desire is still there amongst British people. How do I know that? Because you look at the crypto holdings that people have. You know, six million people in this country hold crypto assets, six million. And most of them are not holding shares. So you've got to have the question, why is it that they feel that they can and are excited and will talk to you? About investing in crypto, I'm sure you guys have had this experience, they will talk to you about it and they will be very knowledgeable about it. They'll be interested in it. And I'm not saying they shouldn't do that. I'm just saying we need to make sure that they feel as excited, as engaged in the public markets.
2: But, but crypto is because the returns on crypto were like, you know, you, you could double your money, you could make it, you could also lose, you know, yeah. 120% is that, of the it, word probably. Yeah.
3: It can go up but, and down. Right? But,
2: but you know, it's just because the crypto, I guess, represents the possibility of getting rich very quickly, which hopefully British company shares would not do that because they're more stable.
3: That's a very fair point. And it's you know, worth being honest enough to say some people may invest in crypto and almost, it's almost like betting. but. Alongside all of this is defined contribution, auto-enrollment, and the necessary forms we've got to make it easier for people to practically engage with their savings. So one of the things we're doing is we're moving towards what we call a pot for life on pensions. So people you know, people move around, they they have often four or five jobs or or several careers. It doesn't make sense to have lots of little pension pots all over the place. We're trying to bring all that together so that people have a much clearer picture of what their pension pot is, what it's going to do, what they might like to invest it in. You then have making the markets more easy for retail uh, investors to, to engage with. And the reason why I'm so passionate about this is, you know, I came, I worked in the city. I was a corporate lawyer at a firm called Freshfields, then an American firm called Simpson Thatcher and Bartlett. Then I worked in strategy and restructuring at HSBC, um, so not doing corporate law anymore. But and the people who I used to work with, who are now you know partners of, of all these big firms and people in private equity and who I used to do deals with, they have access to private markets. They have access to the the Blackstones and the KKR's and all of these the CVCs. But ordinary people do not. So you have a situation where the firms that are often making the greatest returns over the longest period of time, bearing in mind this structural shift towards private markets, only really rich people have access to them. Some people obviously have access through their pension funds, but one of the other reforms we're doing is to make sure that pension funds invest more in alternative assets, British pension funds, because actually British pension funds haven't been investing nearly enough in those high growth sectors.
1: So it makes no sense to me. We've got to allow ordinary people to have a stake in their economies. One of the ways to do that would be the sell-off of NatWest this year. Just explain, what, p- paint a picture for us of how big that, in your mind, if it's successful, how it would go. Does it mean all of us in this room have shares in NatWest? Well, you'll definitely see adverts. Um <laughs> uh, you just signed that off this morning.
3: <laughs> we'll, you, will def- you will definitely see adverts. There's a whole, you know, we have to be careful because obviously one has to be careful to make sure you present people with appropriate information. Uh, but, you know, I'm very, very committed to making this as wide an offer as possible so that as many people as reasonably possible can participate. It makes no sense if it only goes to people with with thousands and thousands of pounds in savings. That is is not fair. I really am committed to make sure that ordinary people who might only have a bit of extra money can participate in this. Um, So that's the first thing. But alongside that, we're doing a lot of work on improving the provision of financial advice and guidance to people because the industry at the moment, because of regulatory concerns, and by the way, you know, I'm very happy to criticize the regulators, as you guys know, but this isn't necessarily their fault. it's the way how things have evolved over time, where it is difficult for people to get cheap accessible financial sensible financial advice. You know, for example, we've got three hundred billion pounds stuck in cash ices, not really doing anything, which isn't necessarily in most cases the wisest thing for a lot of people to do. We're doing a lot of work on improving that. We call the advice guidance boundary, and how do we encourage more firms to offer sensible, affordable advice for people at the same time as bringing forward the NatWest. And so I can see this to be really a moment where we give people access to a great British bank and a great British um, recovery, frankly, from the financial crisis, but at the same time, make sure that people take that opportunity to think about financial advice, look at their pension pot, because all of these reforms should come together at roughly the same time.
1: This building covered the, the listing of Arm in New York, and it was a bit of a kind of gut punch to lots of people around the city. With the job you have now, can you be confident that that kind of thing won't happen again?
3: When you look at, and I've
1: asked for this analysis and I've, looked, I've seen it, the
3: actual results of companies that really should have listed in Britain for their geography, their headquarters, the nature of their business. That's not all British companies, because actually some are 80% US. So it makes sense for them to listen in the US. And it's important that we accept that. But when you look at those that probably should have or wanted to listen in the UK and felt they, they didn't want to, the results over time haven't been great. And so what I've and I've I've seen that from investment bankers across the city. And so I think that the broader advisory community and the bankers are talking to when, when people come to them and say, oh, what about the US or whatever? That's not to say there aren't things we need to do. And look, I've spent the whole time talking about other things we need to change. They will say, well, don't assume that going to the US means it always ends up brilliantly. Your business may well be better suited over the long term for sustainable valuation in London. And so that's why we're making all these regulatory changes to make ourselves fit, match fit for when the market recovers more last year was poor generally, this year things are improving, making sure that we're match fit for when the market is ready, we're here.
2: But th- the market will only be ready after the elections? I mean, there's still quite a lot of uncertainty on tax, on what Labour would do, on you know, e- even a pri- private education tax. So is private capital going to wait and see the outcome of the election and then decide whether they want to come in?
3: I think that the opposition has seen how we very carefully built a consensus for these changes within industry and across government at all levels and the regulators so to be honest i don't anticipate them in in terms of the regulatory changes if they were to form a government i don't i you know i, I just don't see that the industry would now turn around and say we want all these things to change back to how they were but i will say this and i don't want to be party political on this cuz you know it's, we're having a nice time uh, Always on in the city. <laughs> but, but what I would say is, you know, Labour are committed to spending an extra £28 billion above the government's plans. They've said they're not going to change income tax or national insurance. Okay. But they're going to have to change something then because they, that £28 billion is five, it's the equivalent of about 5% on income tax. It's a lot of money. So people have to note that. And realise, and I particularly I think to people in the city, they've got to realise that, you know, who's in charge does matter, notwithstanding, and I go back to where I started, that the broader regulatory reforms we're putting in, we've done with the consensus of the industry and built that consensus over time. And so I think that those things, we're not doing them for this year, we're not doing those things to win elections, we're doing them because it's the right thing for the long term. And I know that the Chancellor is very much in that space as well.
2: Uh, I was in Davos last week and a lot of people, you know, said the UK is probably the next investment opportunity because of politics not being that that far apart from each other. If you look at the two parties, there is a general frustration that they say, you know, when you talk about the City of London, it's always the rule of law. The fact that they speak English, the fact that the time zone is perfect and the fact that they have a good education system as some of the reasons to to invest. Can can you make the case for the City of London as a financial centre without talking about these things that we should, you know, be taking for granted really
3: yeah if you're if you're a society
2: or you're an organisation
3: and you are complacent enough to think that your just inherent advantages are enough forever you're not going to be a leading place for very long uh, and we've got to move away from a complacent mindset to one which is an insurgent mindset that means aware of your strengths but also aware of the need to change. And it is really, really critical. These few years, this year is is a sort of hinge point, but I think these few years are really when we can show that London has adapted to the changes and is going to be able to lead the next, the next chapter.
2: Thank you so much for your time.
3: Thank you. Real pleasure to be here.
2: Thanks for listening to this week's In The City. We'll be back next week, but in the meantime... If you like our show, please head on over to wherever you listen to podcasts, rate, review, and subscribe. It helps people find the show. This episode was hosted by me, Francine Lacroix, and Allegra Stratton. It was produced by Summer Sadi. additional editing by Blake Maples. Special thanks to Bim Afalami.
0: What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you?